You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Effective solutions do not need to be perfect. And we need to be willing to accept significant incremental progress over the coming years. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Josh Yavor. He is CISO at Tessian, and we're discussing their new report on human error. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories this week, we've got a little bit of follow-up here. Uh, do you want to read this, or would you rather have me do it? Oh, why don't you do it? I'm, okay. I'm not good at doing cold reading like you. All I'm right. Not, like, well, uh, just copy reading. This is from uh, someone who writes in whose name is John, and uh, writes in and says, interesting conversation about social media addiction, referring to— last episode. Yep. He says, this is a mental health issue. We have to stop treating mental illness as if it isn't an illness just because we don't see the physical manifestation of the symptoms until very late into the illness when it has become very severe. Mm -hmm. Just as exposure to carcinogens often doesn't manifest physical symptoms until late-stage cancer, the development of a mental illness brought on by overexposure to false or misleading information, online bullying, and other negatives that are present in social media feeds can result in depression— and other mental illnesses that can sometimes manifest in life-threatening symptoms, such as self-harm and suicide attempts. Yep, social media is bad for you. Just like smoking is an addiction that often children and young people, myself included, can bring into their adult lives with very negative results, we need to openly discuss the harmful effects of social media. This lawsuit is most welcome in my eyes. Mental illness is too often overlooked. Perhaps, Joe and Dave, you could put some self-help links in your show notes. By the way, you're right about the hard coding of 20 redirects in Chrome. It would be great to have some control over this. <laughs> As usual, uh, great show sign-off, so look forward to your show every week. Cheers, John. Yes, thank you, John. Thank you for writing in. Uh, we'll look into putting some mental health links uh, into into our show notes, I guess. Yeah. Uh, that sounds like a good idea. Could Certainly could not hurt uh, providing resources to people. Right. I, I, I like the analogy that this that social media is essentially a carcinogen. That. Yeah, I, I've often used the the uh, the analogy that Facebook is much is very much like smoking. Like right. we all know it's bad for us, uh, but when, you know it's easy to get hooked on it. It and is hard to stop. Yeah, <laughs> as someone who stopped, I can I understand the pull. Were you never, ever a smoker, Dave? No, I. You know what? I have. This is <laughs> you're you're probably not going to believe me, but in my entire life, I have never smoked a cigarette. I've never even tried it. Really? No, nope. I was a smoker for. Probably 10 years, yeah. maybe a little bit less. Yeah. I smoked pretty much all the way through college and in early high school and actually started when I was 16 when they'd still sell you cigarettes when you were 16. Right, right. I remember when I was really little and my mom would have me run into the grocery store to buy her a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> I remember and doing they, that too. Yeah, that was uh, different times. <laughs> it was, it was. My mom would give me 70 cents and I'd walk over to the uh, 7-Eleven and pick her a, a pack of Merits. Yeah, out of the machine smoked. sometimes. Right. You know, the ka-chunk machine. Yeah. I remember those machines. Yeah. You know, I used to wait by those machines and watch somebody buy a pack of cigarettes and then go over and pull the matches thing and get a free pack of matches. Oh, wow. <laughs> but we digress. Right. <laughs> I was a uh, hacker even when I was young, Dave. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think there is something to this. I, I think what's difficult 
is how do you draw the direct line between uh, people's behaviors, the you know the outcomes, the, the the bad outcomes, the negative results, right? Things like self harm, things like suicide. How do you draw a direct line between that and participation in social media? Because I think certainly you could make the argument that there are people out there for whom social media is a positive force in their life. Right. I would agree with that statement as well. That there, that, that you know, there, there. This is not like smoking, uh, which, which has had an impact on people. Then that the vast majority of smokers would eventually get lung cancer or something, or right. emphysema. Right. Uh, there were some people that it just didn't affect. Right. That, yeah. yeah, they were in the minority. Yeah, uh, <laughs> people I, smoke and drink and live to be a hundred. Right, <laughs> right. But that's not the case with social media. I would say that the percentage of people that for whom social media is physically harmful mm-hmm. um, is a lot, a lot lower than something like smoking. I would mm-hmm. say. But I don't know. I'd like to know the. I'd like maybe if we measure not just like physical harm, but other mental health harm. Yeah. Right. Like how. How happy are you when you abstain from social media for a while? Mm-hmm. Like I haven't been on Twitter in a very long time. Mm-hmm. I just stopped going to Twitter. Uh, I stopped going to. I uninstalled Snapchat off my phone. I've, I've, you know, I took all the social media platforms off my phone with the exception of the Facebook Messenger. Right. And um, immediately, I noticed that I started being a little bit more happy. <laughs> a little more bounce in your step. Right. A little bit more. <laughs> a little more bounce in my step. Okay. Uh, so I'd like to see a measurement of that, a study that measures that. Yeah. Well, I know, you know, folks are out there working on it, social scientists and and that sort of thing. And, and there certainly have been results that show, particularly for children, teenagers, right. that these can be bad for them. Right. And, and we need I, – I agree with um, our listener here, John, that we need to keep an eye on this. I also agree that, um, you know, mental health does not get the attention it deserves. Yeah, me too. And we need to – to me, we need to um, – demystify and take away any of the shame that is associated with mental health. Yeah. So, um, all, yeah. I mean, I, I think John brings up a lot of good points here and, uh, we appreciate him writing in. Yeah. A lot of this stuff is just not easy to do though. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's a challenge. It, it is, is a challenge. Yeah. It's going to take time, but, uh, glad we got people working on it. Yep. All right. Well, we would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like for us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, let's jump into our stories this week. I'm going to kick things off for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a little bit of research from the folks over at Avanon. Uh, it's a security company. Uh, they published something recently. It's titled Sending Phishing Emails from QuickBooks. Huh. So I think we're all familiar with QuickBooks, a very handy, popular what would you call it? It's an accounting software, It's accounting software and bookkeeping software for businesses. Bookkeeping. Yeah, yeah. That's probably a better way to, to uh, say it. But uh, one of the functions within QuickBooks is that you can send out invoices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and evidently, when you send an invoice through QuickBooks, if you sign up for the free version of QuickBooks, if you send out an invoice, it goes through a QuickBooks mail server. I see. So it comes from QuickBooks. So you see where we're going with this, I do right, see Joe? where we're going with this. <laughs> There's a free account out there that yep. will send emails from a bona fide financial service. Right. Mm. Right. And not only bona fide emails, but a bill. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> that it could also have notes on it and so on and so forth. So walking through this, uh, the bad folks um, spin up a free account. Right. They start sending out invoices to people 
Uh, and, and with those invoices, they send notes that say, please pay this immediately or pass due or, you know, uh, lawsuit to follow or whatever, you know, yes. don't make me call the police on you. Ooh. All these things we talk about. That, that's right. That, sh- that fear, that fear, uh, incentive. Right. Uh, so that email, because it's coming from QuickBooks seems legit, Yep, makes it past the spam filters Absolutely. because you can't, uh, sink hole. QuickBooks because nope. it's a legit service. It is. You don't want to miss a legit invoice from, from QuickBooks or the legit bad things could happen to you. Right. Uh, and so the hackers know this. They take advantage of this and they're using this to send phishing emails uh, to people. And evidently it's uh, it's quite successful. Um, it seems like what they're doing here is they're not so much looking for a response to the email. They're including a phone number and saying, please call us right away to work this out. Mm-hmm. And then the victim calls the phone number, and now the bad people have your phone number. I see. So they got a hot one on the line, right? Yep. Uh, and away they go with the various scams that they're going to try to do. Once they actually engage with you one-on-one, then they you know, they unleash all of the, the more direct tools that they have. Uh, I'm not sure how you prevent this. I mean, I suppose... QuickBooks, I mean, first of all, I'm sure QuickBooks is trying to do everything they can to try to tamp down on this. Right, because my first question would be, do they really need the free tier service to send out emails on the behalf of the user? Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you could just generate an invoice, print it to PDF, and then let them download it and send it via their email. Yeah. Because everybody that does this is going to have some email address. You just don't send it unless you are paying for a service from them. That would discourage a lot of these fishers from doing it. Right. Um, I'm interested to know, do any of these bills have uh, addresses that you can send something to, like a check? Mm. And then, or do they have wiring details or Venmo details? I don't know. Yeah, I would suspect they probably have all, you know, all the usual things right. that, that we have. I, I don't, I haven't actually seen any of the the, the samples of these. Uh, they do actually have an example here in the article, but uh, it's it's pretty, you know, slim. It's more, it's designed to start the conversation, right? right? It's, it's not designed it's to, to elicit a real follow-up where you're going to send the money. It's the first step in engagement. Uh, so, so. so the question is, how do you prevent this yeah. from happening? And that is, the answer is good process on your business and your in your accounts payable department, mm. right? Like every everything that you you uh, buy should have a purchase order number, right? Mm-hmm. So if I call a company, if a company sends me this and I call the number and I say, okay, so you sent me this bill, I need the purchase order number this came from. Yeah. Right? I imagine that that shuts down the, the, the conversation immediately, mm-hmm. right? Because- we issue purchase orders for every purchase we make. Right. And I need you to tell me what that number is, and you should have that number. And if you don't have that number, I'm not paying you. Right. Uh, end of story. Yeah. You need that number for me to pay you. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Th- that's your answer, Dave, is good process and communicate that process to the employees. Yeah. Yeah. And again, just take time. You know, take if you time. find yourself, right. be, be self-aware when you find yourself in this emotional state where someone's trying to get you into that emotional state. Just take a breath. You know, walk walk down the hall, or you know, take a walk outside, call a buddy or whatever, a coworker. Uh, just give it a little time to settle in, and often that'll help. You know, keep you from reacting in a way you wouldn't want to. All right, well, we'll have a link to that story in the show notes. Uh, Joe, what do you have for us this week? Dave, my story comes from CNBC, and the authors are Scott Zamost and Yasmin Karam, hmm. and. 
there's a guy named Sean Reagan, who is the FBI special agent in charge of the San Francisco and Sacramento field offices. Okay. And he says that fraudsters who exploit LinkedIn to lure users into cryptocurrency investment schemes pose a significant threat to the platform and its customers. Hmm. Dave, you and I have talked about LinkedIn and fake profiles. Yeah. I'm pretty sure there's a person that's running a fake profile on LinkedIn right now that both you and I are connected with. Really? Yep. Okay. Uh, I think this because the profile picture looks like it was generated by this person does not exist. Okay. But it doesn't come up that way when I run it through a, a detector, hmm. right? So maybe they've done something to the picture. Uh, and the other thing is this person is commenting randomly on different stories and commenting about a vast swath of things. Hmm. Okay. Um, but they also have recommendations or, or confirmations in their, in their bio about things. And I'm, 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 I don't know if this person is real or not. I'm really actually wondering. Hmm. But – Reagan is talking about a specific scheme here. Here's how it works. A fraudster posing as a professional creates a fake profile and reaches out to LinkedIn users in general, mm -hmm. right? The scammer starts with small talk over LinkedIn messaging, right? How many times you get LinkedIn? I get a lot of people talking to me over LinkedIn messaging. Actually. Okay. Uh, and it happens frequently. And they eventually offer to help the uh, person with crypto investments, uh -huh. right? And people that CNBC interviewed say that LinkedIn is a trusted platform for business networking. They tend to believe the investments are legitimate. Hmm. Now, I don't know why you would believe that. Uh, if someone approached you on Facebook and and presented you with a a, uh, a crypto a crypto investment yeah. plan, and you'd be less inclined to believe it than you would on LinkedIn, I would be equally inclined to believe neither of those. Right? <laughs> yeah. But that's my skepticism. Right. And yeah. maybe somebody is a is a crypto investor on sure. LinkedIn. I'm sure there's tons of them, right? That they're actually crypto investors. Legitimate businessmen. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> Typically, what the fraudsters will do will will direct users to legitimate investment platforms for crypto. Yeah. And then after gaining trust in a couple of months, and presumably these people actually buying crypto, mm -hmm. cryptocurrencies, they tell them, hey, move it to this new investment site that we have. And that's when the money's gone. I see. Right? So huh. here's one of the key points about cryptocurrency. If you don't own the private keys, you don't own the cryptocurrency. Mm. This is a, a common saying among people who invest in cryptocurrency. It doesn't matter what the platform is. If you're trusting uh, a, a, an exchange to hold your cryptocurrency, you're hoping and believing that they will give it to you when you ask for it. And mm. it's true. That's true of legitimate and fraudulent cryptocurrency exchanges. Mm -hmm. The big difference between the two types is that the legitimate ones actually send you the cryptocurrency when you ask for it. <laughs> well, could you say the same thing about a bank? You could, absolutely. But I guess the bank has, you know, the FDIC insuring your deposits right. to a I certain mean, point. As far as you know, right? <laughs> right How right. do you know they don't just buy one of those little signs that says FDIC and put it up in the teller's office? <laughs> That's right. I mean, sure. it, this is this is exactly the same, the same problem. Yeah. Uh, I could easily set up a, an online bank and say, start transferring money to me and we'll open a bank account for you. Mm -hmm. it, it could be done. So if you do own cryptocurrency and you keep it in an exchange, don't transfer it to a new exchange. Just don't do it. Hmm. Uh, you know, there are exchanges out there like Coinbase and Kraken and a, a bunch of other ones that are legit. And you can, I think it's pretty safe to keep your coins there. Again, you're trusting them and you're trusting that they'll remain secure. So you have to do your due diligence and find out what their security policies are. Uh, 
But right, but I mean, is it fair to say that they're all legit right up until the moment when they're not? Right, they could still it, fail they the could same fail. way that a, a bank, you know, certainly in the Great Depression, you know, you, and uh, it's harder to happen now. But we all have faith. All of this, right? <laughs> all, money requires a certain amount of faith, right? right? Um, if I could so, talk about that for a minute, I mean, there <laughs> there are things out there that, like, I don't do business with any of the large banks. Yeah, right. Because if one of those fails, the F FDIC has a problem, uh-huh. right? If I if a small local bank fails, the FDIC doesn't have a problem. Okay, right? It's it's not a problem. I'm I'm, I'm going to get all of my money back if my local bank fails. If a national bank fails, I may not get all my money back. Hmm, okay, that's my fear anyway. All right. In a statement, LinkedIn acknowledged that there has been a recent uptick in fraud on its platform, telling CNBC that we enforce our policies, which are very clear. Fraudulent activity, including financial scams, are not allowed in LinkedIn. Yeah. Well, thank you, LinkedIn. That should take care of the problem. (laughs) They go on to say, we work every day to keep our members safe, and this includes investing in automated and manual defenses to detect and address fake accounts, false information, and suspected fraud. Right. They, they, the statement goes on with stuff like we work with law enforcement, but you know, it, it really is an issue of stopping this from happening. Hmm. I think LinkedIn should be doing more to stop this from happening. Like what? Well, I don't know how LinkedIn works internally, but maybe they are looking at account behaviors, right? Hey, here's a new account who just made a bunch of requests, and now this person is sending a bunch of messages out there. Mm-hmm. Do they have end-to-end encryption on the messages? I don't think LinkedIn does have that, so LinkedIn can probably read the messages. Mm. Are these people talking about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin? Is that coming up? Okay, this guy's just sending out a bunch of things, and it looks like this is just a scammer. Yeah. All right? And maybe they they're doing, doing that. that. Yeah. They may be doing yeah, that I, now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but this is happening a lot more. Uh, Oscar Rodriguez, who is the senior director of Trust, Privacy, and Equity, says, quote, trying to identify what is fake and what is not is incredibly difficult. So I think I would add at scale. At scale. Right. <laughs> right. Which is which is all the I mean, that's the ball game for, yeah. for social media platforms. Exactly. He goes on to say, one of the things that I would really love for us to do would be would be to get more proactive education for members. Letting members know or basically allowing them to understand the risks that they might face. Well, you know, here's here's my question for, for Oscar Rodriguez. You are the senior director of trust and privacy and equity, trust, privacy, and equity. Why is that not what you're doing? If that's what you'd like to see what see LinkedIn do, you're in charge of mm-hmm. this part of the part of the issue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Start doing that. Man, you have mandatory training before they allow you to, to continue on it, LinkedIn it, before it, you can create your, I your account? No, actually, Dave, I don't think it should be mandatory training. Yeah. I think it should be, for all the users, continuous reminders. Okay. Right? Small reminders, like, uh, you know, like, you know those annoying re- annoying subscription like Clippy, requests? Like Clippy. Clippy could pop up. <laughs> we see you're about to do a cryptocurrency interaction. Are you sure you want to proceed? <laughs> you know, maybe if it's the first time you, you go to LinkedIn during that day, you right. get a little window that says, remember, there's there's an opportunity for cryptocurrency scams on LinkedIn. And yeah. you can click dismiss. Yeah. Right? A reminder like that. That's yeah. all it takes. Yeah. Proactive education that happens on a regular basis. Yeah. I think it's a good idea. Yeah. And right. Yes, I I understand your your concern that that would be annoying. <laughs> I get it, and but as a I don't know how a social media platform would perform these education tasks without doing something like that. Right, that's the challenge. Is that right. they're all about engagement. They want you to spend as much time as on as platform. you can on the platform. Right. 
And so they want to reduce friction as much as possible. And yes. training is friction. It right? is. Security is friction. It is. Yep. So it, it, you have a, a, I guess it would be fair to call it a perverse incentive. I would say it's a perverse incentive. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly what I would call it, actually. All right. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes as well. Again, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from Jennifer, who writes, Hi, Joe and Dave. I love Hacking Humans, and I'm downloading and listening to all of them. Well, thank you. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm a total novice with all of this, but I enjoy and take heed to all of your security suggestions. I was recently listening to one of your podcasts on Zelle when I received the attached text. Pardon my language. Naturally, they did not respond. So, Dave, it's a very short SMS message. Okay. Uh, Why don't you read this, and then I will read and censor Jennifer's response. (laughs) Okay. It says, Venmo, your Venmo checking account was used to make a transaction of $799. A contact customer support, if not initiated by you. Screw you, scammer. I don't have a Venmo account just because I know you are out there. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of the conversation. <laughs> now, this is a very short catch of the day. Yeah. But I wanted to thank Jennifer for sending it in because it's actually a very important catch of the day for three reasons. Mm. One, this catch of the day, this this scam started over text message, mm-hmm. SMS. We've talked about this. One of the recent changes we're seeing is that more scams are coming over SMS and less over email because email is getting better at protecting people. Right. Right. Uh SMS doesn't have any such protections mm-hmm. at all. Payment apps are are pretty new, and they're almost all based on your phone. That's how you pay people. Mm-hmm. So it makes one hundred percent sense that you would get a text message when you when there was a a a a, a, a transaction. Mm-hmm. Like I have credit cards that when I when there's a transaction on the credit card, I get a text message. Yeah, right. And the brevity of this is why it works. Mm. Hmm. So be wary when you get this. If you call that number, you're going to be asked to install some kind of remote control software on your phone, and they're just going to try to transfer money out of their out of your Venmo app. They already know that you have Venmo if you call them back mm-hmm. uh, because that's what the hook is here, mm-hmm. or, or the lure, rather. I'll also point out uh, that in the message here, they spell Venmo with a zero at the end instead of an O. That is an interesting observation. Mm-hmm. And that is probably to get through the... Some kind of filter. I don't know if that yeah. works or not. Yeah, there is. I mean, there is a there is some filtering on iOS devices. I know, like I have a you know unknown sender folder where it'll it'll put things. Yeah, my Android, my Google device puts things in spam quickly. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there is some filtering going on, but you're right. I mean, it's it's not like email. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to Jennifer for sending this in. If you have something you'd like us to consider for Catch of the Day, you can send it to us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Josh Yavor. He is the chief information security officer at a company called Tessian, and they recently published a report on human error. Here's my conversation with Josh Yavor. I think the creation of the report was driven by really just the reality that we're seeing in the marketplace. 
we see a ongoing uh, multi-year, multi-decade trend where the majority of cybersecurity incidents and breaches either start with or are dependent upon human error and human involvement. Well, let's go through some of that. I mean, what are the specific things that this report tracks? Yeah, so in this report, we're really looking at the overall landscape of how human behavior intersects with attacker um, behavior as well and the successful breaches that that, that have occurred. So we're really trying to understand the the psychology behind, you know, human error uh, through data and the uh, the learnings that we can get from the behavior of uh, of humans who have um, been engaged with by attackers and um, in many cases, sadly, fallen victim uh, to uh, to uh, phishing attacks in particular. Well, let's explore that together. I mean, what are some of the the highlights here, some of the things that caught your attention? Yeah, so I think like stepping back and looking at um, you know the the broader landscape, so to speak, uh, we know from the research that more than one in four uh, respondents fell for phishing emails at work over the last year, and that um, we're now up to over half of employees saying that they actually fell for uh, phishing emails because the attacker was impersonating a, a senior executive, and that's up for uh, up from I believe um, around forty forty one percent from the previous year. And so to us, it's the trending of behavior and learning what is effective and on the attacker side that helps us understand how to better educate, inform, and defend our end users who are falling victim to these attacks. Yeah, you bring up a really interesting point, a, a question that I have, which is, you know, to what degree do we think that the the trending here is because the the bad guys are growing more sophisticated in their approach? It's a great question, and I, I have um, some personal bias here. I mean, admittedly, I, uh, <laughs> I I see the sophistication question in two through two different lenses. First is yes, we can recognize that attackers are genuinely increasing their sophistication. An example of that is that over the last five years, in particular, attacker access to toolkits that allow them to do things like bypass traditional MFA solutions and so on have become increasingly sophisticated and largely freely available to, in, in many cases. And so I think that is a legitimate example of attacker sophistication increasing through the use of um, you know, progressively like uh, modern and useful tooling. Now, on the other hand, though, I think we tend to, as an industry, overuse the term sophisticated attack. And there's, um, I don't know which security leader coined this, otherwise I would give them credit, but the saying goes that we only call them sophisticated attacks when they're successful and we have to talk about them. (laughs) Um, And I think that the underlying truth that we have to realize is that social engineering attacks, and including those that include um, uh, email-based phishing or social engineering over SMS, voice, or even social media like LinkedIn, Twitter, and so on, these are effective inherently because they're not sophisticated in many cases. It's simple human communication um, at scale with a, uh, with a set of target victims. And it's the persistence and it's the scale and it's the, uh, the fact that the age-old tricks of how to convince a human to believe you when they shouldn't are still not that sophisticated um, and they still work. And so I think both are true. We're seeing it, uh, increasingly sophisticated attacks in some cases, but 
a large amount of the uh, events that actually occur and result in breaches and security events are not as sophisticated as we might otherwise like to claim. Hmm. So what role does security awareness training play in all of this? Is, is there any data here that uh, that points to that, you know, moving the needle in either direction? Yes, I think so. And I would say that it was the um, uh, that, that second data point that I, I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago around the increasing trend of impersonation um, of executives in particular that we can uh, we can we can look at and extrapolate from. So if we think about security awareness training, we have um, you know uh, at this point now multi decades of um, of security awareness training uh, behind us. And sadly, I can't sit here and claim that it's been all that effective aside from checking compliance boxes, unfortunately, uh, for, for a lot of organizations. And I say that because all of our, maybe not all, the majority of our training effort for security awareness has really been on things like detecting signatures of uh, phishing emails, trying to train people to look at a URL without clicking it and somehow know whether it's dangerous or not, or look at files and try to magically know whether it's dangerous or not. That type of training is something that we should really consider legacy these days. In some cases, it may be useful to do some things there in terms of how to spot a fish at a very high level. However, there's two things that we can learn from recent trends in reality. Technology. First, needs to be the way that we solve the how to spot a malicious URL, how to identify a malicious file. Humans at scale will never be technical enough, um, on average, informed enough, or have the tools necessary on their end to do that effectively. Security tooling, uh, email platforms in particular, and, and products in the email security space have to get that right to support people. And that means that our security awareness training should focus on where technology on its own cannot operate and solve these problems independently. And a great example of where security awareness training really needs to go is really to follow what we're seeing in terms of successful attacks. Executive impersonation, security awareness training that consciously addresses executive impersonation and similar types of modern attacks and informs end users of what they can count on that their CEO, their CFO will never email them from a personal email address, asking them to buy gift cards for offer uh, folks or that nobody in an executive position will ever send an SMS message and require that somebody make a wire transfer to another party um, in the next few hours because it's urgent. And if we shift our awareness training um, approach to address what attackers are actually doing while we actually apply the, um, the most useful uh, technologies to cover the rest of what security awareness training once was. I think that's how we really progress and do better here. Well, let's touch on some of the technological solutions here as well. I mean, where, where do we stand when it comes to that? What, where, what's the state of the art in helping people from that side of things? Yeah, I think um, technology has continued to progress, um, perhaps not as rapidly or completely uh, across all attack surfaces and threat vectors that we would like. The optimist in me points to a few different things in terms of uh, modern security technology. First, we see a large-scale migration by many organizations to cloud email infrastructure. And many organizations today just start in cloud-based email. 
And with that comes a lot of built-in capabilities um, and safety controls that are provided by providers like Google and Microsoft, um, whether you're using personal Gmail, personal Outlook, or Google Workspace, or Microsoft 365. And no matter what tier you're paying them for, you're getting a lot of technology solutions that keep you safer in your email day-to-day. And the best part is you don't need to turn them on. You don't even know about it. It's just taken care of in the background. That used to be really difficult and expensive for any individual or organization to uh, uh, to, to take on. Today, mm-hmm. it's increasingly accessible, cheap if not free, in terms of you know security 101 for, for email. The other thing I would point to is... Um, cloud email provider and additional security products in, in the email security space, investing in and developing more advanced features. And whether that's things like advanced uh, malware analysis and similar in the cloud email providers, we're progressing there. And then we also have additional uh, tooling that's now available and has become available over the past few years. My company, Tessian, is in this space, but there's a number of other uh, vendors out there as well that are applying behavioral analysis and data science-based outcomes to identify what is odd or anomalous in terms of email behavior and mm-hmm. providing opportunities that um, that rules and like signature-based solutions um, really can't uh, identify reliably. And the beauty, beautiful part of, you know, the, the future that we're working towards, and I, again, I, I know I'm being a little bit, uh, 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 optimistic glasses way more than half full in what I'm saying here, but we're heading in exciting directions in terms of different layers of security for email playing nice together and providing effective solutions as well integrated um, technologies that really protect people at the end of the day. Now, I just said a whole bunch of warm, fuzzy things. There is so (laughs) much work to do. We are nowhere close to where we need to be as an industry and all of these things working well together and firing on all cylinders, so to speak. But I think it's where we have a positive trajectory and we just need to continue working on this trajectory. And I think to our conversation a moment ago around like security awareness training and some of the traditional approaches, we have to be willing to shed what has not worked historically or what may have worked years ago, but is no longer the the best solution for us and be open to different types of integrated security outcomes in order for us to be prepared for the future. You know, I I think you make some excellent points here. And I I personally, I, you know, I think back to some of the early days when, when really the world started coming online and we started connecting with each other, you know, via this fancy new thing called the internet. And one of the big problems back then was, of course, spam. Um, And it was a hard problem. But it strikes me that today, to your point, with many of the, particularly the cloud providers, Spam is pretty much solved. You know, I I don't maybe it, it does me uh, good to go looking through my spam filter. You know, every couple of weeks to make sure something hasn't gotten gobbled up in there. But overall, they do a remarkable job with that. Is that where we're headed with these other things? With things like business email compromise? Do you envision a day when we look back and we say, "Gosh, remember the the dark days of that." I sure hope so. And I think that's a great example of where we've really progressed. I too, like when I started using email for the first time, spam, just basic spam was the biggest problem, um, just the sheer volume of it. And I think that today, while I still have spam emails hit my personal inbox in particular, 
it's actually the exception rather than what was the norm. And so I think that if you think, if you look at spam as an example of what a couple decades plus of investment and incremental improvement over time can result in, I think there's two things there. One is that these, these capabilities are imperfect. No cloud provider, no security technology, nothing can say we're going to 100% uh, prevent all spam from ever hitting your inbox. That can be true while at the same time, you and I just agreed that today spam is mostly a solved problem. And so mm-hmm. I think that's the other thing that we need to learn from the progress that we've made in securing email um, against uh, spam in this case is that effective solutions do not need to be perfect. And Mm -hmm. we need to be willing to accept significant incremental progress over the coming years towards exceptional yet impossible to get 100% perfect outcomes in increasing email security and safety, whether that's through business email compromise or um, similar like account takeover attacks that may affect um, uh, email as well because of modern MFA bypass and so on. We need to look for similar levels of, um, of incremental progress. And again, reminding ourselves that done is better than perfect. And I think that while it still takes work to maintain you know, uh, resilience against spam, let's not get ourselves there, um, and the work yeah. will never be done, we're done enough to say that we've protected enough of you know the the global attack surface, and that should be a similar goal for many of these additional risks in email security. So, what are your recommendations then? I mean, for for folks who are charged with uh, helping secure their organization's email, how do you recommend they go about that? Yeah, I think that there's um, you, you always have to take care of the security one hundred and one basics. To me, what that means is starting with the traditional, most common attack vectors. It's making sure that you have secure access to email, strong account protections in terms of authentication, strong multi-factor authentication, ideally secure access policies that are in place to make, um, you know, uh, to, to provide resiliency and access to those accounts. Because let's face it, email accounts are the, the gateway to everything that we do online, both in our personal lives and in, in our corporate lives. And so you still have to get all that that basic configuration right. We really need to make sure that we're turning off legacy protocols as much as possible. Things like uh, POP and IMAP that um, are generally not compliant with secure access policies or MFA. But then as I look forward to like the uh, the cloud email providers and then the broader like email security space, there's a few other things I would recommend. First is go all in on the security capabilities that are provided by your cloud email provider. When you look at Microsoft and Google, they have fantastic capabilities that are just a checkbox away, but you have to go through and you have to think about which ones to turn on, which ones to not turn on potentially, and make those conscious decisions. It's amazing to me how many organizations, especially like in the mid-market, um, have all these capabilities that just have yet to be turned on sometimes that they're already paying for or got for free. So get that layer right and then think about what comes next. And that's where we get into the more advanced product space out there today. And so that's things like what we were talking about before for what uh, is um, in marketing terms called integrated cloud email security. Uh, it's a marketing term. Don't blame, don't shoot the messenger. Uh, I didn't make it up. Um, but these are the email security products that are additive and build on top of what the cloud uh, email providers are able to do as like the baseline uh, security features. 
And in this space, that's where you're going to find things like behavioral analytics and deeper integrated outcomes across multiple aspects of security. And in, uh, in, 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 in my case here at Tessian, one of the things that I like about being in this space is that you have the opportunity to converge some of the things that we were talking about. How do you hmm. get email security right from a behavioral analytics and um, uh, advanced attack perspective, while also taking advantage of opportunities for effective in the moment security coaching and training that goes beyond the traditional, Hey, it's that time again to do our annual security awareness training. And we're going to hope that, you know, we tell you something useful. It's in this product space that you find the opportunity to, to get that more right by meeting people in the moment, coaching them on how to think about a email they're sending an email they're receiving and let them make an informed decision that you're confident will also protect your business at the same time. Joe, what do you think? I like a lot of what Josh has to say. Mm. Uh, First off, multi-decade trend that human error is responsible for a very large part of breaches. Yeah. And yet we continue to invest heavily in the technical solutions to this problem. (laughs) Right. Um, And... I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't invest heavily in technical solutions. We should. They're, yeah. they're absolutely essential. Right. You can't live your life without a firewall. Yeah. Right. Uh, I'm glad that somebody is finally looking at the psychological nature, the psychology behind this. Mm-hmm. It's very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting that more than 25% of respondents fell for a phishing email in the past year, and 50% of employees said that they had been victimized in the past by someone impersonating their, their executives. Right. It's widespread. It's widespread. And th- th- it's interesting that they're saying that they're, that Josh is telling us about these tools that are out there. And just like in other markets, the cost of these tools is going down to the point where it's almost free. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. This is this is the same economic pressures that are happening. Yeah. <laughs> I like what he says. The only way we call them sophisticated attacks is when they work. That's the only time we call them sophisticated attacks. Right. Right. Uh, <laughs> kind of true. Yeah. This is one of your points that you've been making for years. Yeah. These are really good hackers that (laughs) manage to penetrate our our networks. Right. Nation state level attacks. Right. How how could we possibly have defended ourselves against it? Please don't sue us. (laughs) Uh, These attacks are not sophisticated in in a technical sense, but Mm -hmm. they they kind of are sophisticated emotionally. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Additionally, they're also large. So they're sophisticated in volume. I guess you could say. So there are yeah. kinds of sophistication that they have. But he's right. You know, these are not elite hacksaws coming into your network. No, I would say, like, in my mind, they're refined. Yes. Right? That's a good way to put it. Yeah. They're refined. Yeah. Josh makes an excellent point about security awareness training. Don't ask people to look for technical indicators like malicious URLs or malicious files. That's a technology thing. Mm. Let technology handle that. Mm-hmm. People are bad at it, and technologies are good at it. Mm-hmm. Instead, train people to look for patterns that indicate it's a phishing email. Mm. This is where people are much better. Uh, so go with the strengths of each. Like, for example, does your this phishing email have an immediate call to action? It's a violation of policy. It's something you're not familiar with. Those three things right there, that's a pattern. Yeah, you should be able to see that and go. Ah, something's up here. This mm-hmm. th- now I need to go and independently verify this. Right. I'm not just responding to this. Yeah, uh, I like what he says about communicating policy. Make sure everybody knows that nobody on the executive team is ever going to go to the individual contributor level and ask them to do something. 
right? right. Like buy gift cards. <laughs> right, right. Right. I mean, right. I can't remember the last time the president of the university called me. He never has. <laughs> right. He doesn't even know who I am. <laughs> Say. He just, yeah, he's not pining away wondering if if you'll answer his call, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> President Daniels has no idea who Joe Perry is. Now, the dean does. The dean knows who I am. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I get a Christmas card from him every year. <laughs> okay. Corporate card. I was going to say, you're on his watch list. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. I got to listen to this show make sure Hank Kerrigan doesn't say something stupid. Yeah. Embarrass the university. Um, but the, uh, you know, it it's— you're in a much smaller organization though, right? Sure. And yeah. it's not unusual for the CEO to send you an email. Right. So it's Peter, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you get Peter email emails from Peter every day. Yeah, can't get him to shut up. <laughs> but, no, I love you, Peter. Yes, <laughs> as do I. We're both big fans of Peter. And But I'm pretty sure that you know that Peter would never send you an email going, Dave, I need you to get me some gift cards. Right. Right? Yeah. Uh, so- You've got what you have to do is you have to assess what your organization your the, you know the, your organization you have to do threat modeling on what your organization looks like and then you have to train your people to recognize the malicious patterns that these bad guys are following yeah because they're almost always following a, a standard set of principles that we talk about on this show all the time they have yeah. some pretext they have some uh, emotional trigger they have some call to action and they have some artificial time horizon and then they may try to isolate you. Yeah. Right. You see any two of those things in an email, it should lead you to believe that this email is not genuine. Right. Right. And they do it because it works and they do it. They use those things because they work at volume. Right. So just make sure you and your organization are not the low hanging fruit. Correct. Yeah. I like Josh's optimism about the idea that we will get there. We, mm. I, I, I agree with that. I think eventually we will. Uh, I think there has to be more uh, the involvement of more psychologists in this field. Yeah, and I think we just got to make it so that it's not worth it. The The cost is too high. Get them to move on to something else. Yeah. You know, but uh, we got a ways to go, but I'm glad folks like Josh are out there uh, doing the good work. And uh, we appreciate him reaching out to us and taking the time with us. All right, that is our show. I want to thank all of you for listening. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Ivan. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 